circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. And tonight on Full Circle, we jump into the fun drive to do our part to keep this iconic station thriving. On tonight's show, we'll hear excerpts of a press conference concerning the case of Angelo Quinto, a young man who died after suffering what police called a medical emergency while in police custody in Antioch. Police used the knee on the neck technique in this case. We'll also speak with the mayor and the vice mayor of Antioch about police reform in Antioch and also celebrating black history. Later, we'll hear a tribute to the Reverend Polly Murray, and we'll kick it off tonight with a history of Black History Month. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Free Will and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch, my home, Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Free Will and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And like I said a moment ago, tonight we will kick off the show with the history of Black History Month, which many of us may or may not know. Um, but before I jump into that, I just want to remind you all that we are in the middle of the winter fun drive, and you can donate anytime by going to kpfa.org. Unfortunately, we are not able to take calls at this time because our call center is based in Texas and it has frozen and lost power. So if you are able to help us out online tonight, please do so during Full Circle at kpfa.org. But let's get going tonight because all around the nation, um, People, cities, and organizations have been celebrating Black History Month. We have done two special broadcasts ourselves, and KPFA did a whole day of Black History Month. But how did Black History Month get started? First Voice Apprentice graduate Ron Thompson brings us the history on Black History Month. Greetings, this is Ron Thompson, and we want to celebrate with you Black History Month. Black History Month, or National African American History Month, is an annual celebration of achievements by black Americans and a time for recognizing the central role of African Americans in U.S. history. The event grew out of the Negro History Week, the brainchild of the noted historian Carter G. Woodson and other prominent African Americans. Since 1976, every U.S. president has officially designated the month of February as Black History Month. Other countries around the world, including Canada and the United Kingdom, also devote a month to celebrating black history. 
The story of Black History Month begins in 1915, half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. That September, the Harvard-trained historian Carter G. Woodson and the prominent minister Jesse E. Moreland founded the ASNLH, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, an organization dedicated to researching and promoting achievements by black Americans and other peoples of African descent. Known today as the ASALH, the Association of the Study of African American Life and History, the group sponsored a National History Week in 1926, choosing the second week of February to coincide with the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. The event inspired schools and communities nationwide to organize local celebrations, establish history clubs, and host performances and lectures. In the decades that followed, mayors of cities around the country began issuing yearly proclamations recognizing Negro History Week. By the late 1960s, thanks in part to the Civil Rights Movement and a growing awareness of Black identity, Negro History Week had evolved into Black History Month on many college campuses. President Gerald R. Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976, calling upon the public to seize the opportunity to honor the too often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. Since then, every American president has designated February as Black History Month. When I think about black history, it's hard to divorce black history from American history. Even bleach cannot remove the stains of hatred and the inhumane treatment of the peoples of this continent at the beginning of this cooperation. Nor can any amount of whitewashing change the facts that are the truth about how this country grew, about the strange bedfellows made on this land from sea to shining sea, these United States. Black history is American history, and that can be defined by some of the laws that are written and on the books for and about black people. Black History Month, where people pause to be thoughtful and thankful, and hopefully use the time gratefully in acknowledgement of the tenacity and resiliency of the darkest citizens of these United States, so-called through time, the colored, the Negro, the Afro and African-American, the Black, and yes, still at certain times with certain people in certain places, the Negro. The displaced enslaved Africans' experience has not been an envious trophy of inspiration or aspiration of any of the known immigrants fighting to gain entrance or remain, if even in the shadows, on the shores of the land of the free and the home of the brave. But nearly all anywhere will feel free to study, imitate, steal, swindle, or borrow from them of recollection of the harsh life endured after the emancipation from slavery with a resounding tribute to you black folks. A shout of celebration to a nation within a nation with an indomitable spirit. Here's to you, the people with soul power you with the hated skin color, who have more than survived the cruelest, most horrific treatment imaginable to living beings. 
Here's to you, black people, for you have endured relentless atrocities in these United States of America. They are as old as your stolen soul, perpetuated by a menacing mentality that seems to reap great pleasure from your pain. Even today, plans are devised to cause you grief just because of the color of your skin. Thanks for staying with me on this trip through history. I'm Ron Thompson. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM and KPFA.org. I am Freeborn Franklin, and you just heard graduate apprentice Ron Thompson share some history on Black History Month. Thank you, Ron. And it's good to hear your voice again on the airwaves. A quick reminder, we are asking for support tonight for KPFA and the Pacifica Network. Remember, KPFA is a listener-sponsored station and has been that way since 1949. In fact, we are the first listener-sponsored station in the country. Let's keep that going. If you are able to help out tonight, please go to kpfa.org and make a donation online. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, we cannot take calls tonight. So if you can, please help us out to achieve our goals at kpfa.org. And I believe we have a $1,000 goal tonight, so you can help us reach that. And if you go to kpfa.org, you can see many of the gifts there to choose from. Even our Knowledge is Power Black History Collection, which goes to anyone who makes a donation of any size tonight. Just be sure to leave an email because it will be emailed to you. This includes Maya Angelou as the World Rises event at the Calvin Simmons Theater in Oakland, California. That was September 8, 1995. And you get Langston Hughes from 1958 speaking to a live audience, intersecting stories from his life and how he got started writing with readings of his poems. That was recorded at UC Berkeley. All that and more is waiting for you at kpfa.org. Just get on over there and hit on the donate tab for us tonight. Okay, moving on with the show now. On December 23rd, 2020, the Quinto family in Antioch called the police for help with their son who was having a mental health episode. There was no violence, no weapon, yet the police who arrived showed up with lethal, with lethal force, putting their knee in the back and the neck of Angelo Quinto who died from those injuries. The family broke their silence on this tragic event yesterday at their home in Antioch. Here are some excerpts from the press conference, starting with the attorney, John Burris, then the Quinto family, the sister, Bella, and father, Robert. Good morning, uh, everyone. Uh, I'm attorney John Burris, and my law, law office has filed a claim today uh, against the city of Antioch regarding uh, the death of Angelo Quinto. We've done so under circumstances that we think is particularly horrific. Horrific in the sense that at this point in time, there should not be a situation where a person is uh, laboring under mental distress and the police react to him in such a way uh, that instead of taking care of it and re reducing the, the tension 
They immediately grab, throw the person, throw Mr. Quino down, get on him. And, and really, the most tragic part of this is the, the George Floyd hold. All of you have seen that on television at some point. And what you saw and what happened here is the officers got on his, Mr. Quino's neck with their knee and pressed down on it and flipped up his legs as well. So he almost had a, a boat position. And within five minutes, he essentially was dead. And that should not happen. It's tragic. The worst part of it to me, and there are several parts that are extraordinarily important, but Mr. Quino had a basic fear of police, like many men do. He's certainly a, a, had a fear of dying, dying, and he had expressed these issues with his, to his family on more than one occasion. And so when the police grabbed him from his mother's arm, who was cuddling him like a baby, and holding him down because he was, wanted to be close and he didn't want to be left, they snatched him from her and then throw him down. But on the way down, he says, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And they muttered some words like, we're not going to kill you. But within moments, they had. They had. I'm Isabella or Bella Collins. Isabella, she's 18. I don't really know what to say, but um, my family is not unique. This incident is not unique. It's happened to a lot of people. We've seen the position that the officers took kill people before. And my mom and I trusted them too much because the violence and the brutality that we saw did not come in the form of guns or blatant beating. It was, it was, um, sorry. It came in the form of excessive restraint and a dangerous tactic used to calm people. I have quotes on my finger. To calm people. Um, we, we want, I, well, I want to bring him back, but if we can't do that, we want justice in any way we can get it. Um, we want a new number to call, someone who can help us with mental health crises and other related domestic incidents. And we want to question the, the police hold that they used and hopefully get it banned here. Hi, my name is Robert Collins. Uh, I'm proud to say that um, Angelo uh, called me dad. You know, when Isabella, my daughter, called 911, she was looking for help. Um, she she had no idea that she was engaging in a system that's broken and unable to regulate itself and investigate itself. Um, a system that, although there are good cops, of course, um, a system that often treats poor people and people of color, be they native, black, Asian, Latino, as if they are guilty first 
and then had to be found innocent later. A system that, when there's a misstep, tends to cover up itself and come in on itself and begin to change the facts and obfuscate the facts and prevent truth from coming out to preserve the status quo and to prevent changes from happening. Uh, number one is um, we'd like to know if the police had body cams and if they were turned on. And if they didn't have body cams, I think the question for the community is why not? Um, and if we do pass a law that says they have to have body cams, they should not be able to turn them off. Uh, number two is we're still waiting for blood samples to run a toxicology report. I saw one in the hospital originally that showed nothing, but we haven't gotten the blood samples as far as I know to be able to do the second part. And uh, we'd like to know who the officers were, what, what their records were, and if that's something that we have a problem, uh, that, that's an ongoing problem, or if that's a one-time thing and we can solve it through training or what have you. Um, you know, ultimately, Angel's life would be lost in vain if we cannot work with others. And, and I want to say thank you to all of you who are here, other families that are in the similar situation uh, as us. Sorry. It has been amazing to be a part of this club of people who have lost. And I had no idea how many people that encompassed. Um, but thank you for being here. Ultimately, Angela's life will have been lost in vain if we cannot work towards some reform so that others do not have to face the same situation. Um, I, would, I would just like to say that Isabella asked many times on that fateful night of December 23rd, half an hour before Noche Buena, but it's a Filipino holiday. She asked the officers, a couple times at least, what number should I have called? Is there a better number to call? And they answered, all of them answered, no, you did the right thing. That is the only number you can call. So the answer was no. But I think as Cesar Chavez would say, si se puede. We can do it. We can make that answer be yes. There can be a number you can call. There can be something that is staffed with enough resources so that they can come out 24-7, you know, all the time. Other jurisdictions have done it. Eugene has done it. Denver's done it. I don't know why we have to be that regressive. And so it's not an anti-cop thing. It's about, you know, it makes sense for the city of Antioch to have a police force that actually works well. It's cheaper. It's very expensive to do things wrong. Um, it's also not effective. So the last thing I would say is that as a community, I think what I see is what we're asking for is that instead of subjugation and, um, and constraining somebody and dehumanizing them, what we're really asking for is a change that respects each and every one of us as a human being and as a member of the community. And that um, we go beyond the idea of domination as a way of policing, dominating the subject, to respecting that subject and showing respect for the community you serve and putting those interests of the community above the personal interests of the officers that are serving. That's what it means to provide public service. And so for that, um, we will strive. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM and 94.1 KPFA and KPFA.org. Those heartbroken voices you're hearing right now are that of the Quinto family of Antioch. 
Those were just a few minutes of a a press conference that was held yesterday at their family home in Antioch. And I will post a link to the entire press conference on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. Also present and speaking at the press conference was Uncle Bobby, uh, Oscar Grant's uncle, Ton Hall, the mother of Miles Hall, who was also killed by police on a mental health call in Walnut Creek, as well as Rick Perez, the father of Petey Perez. The activist community of Antioch came out to show their support as well. Look for more of the Quinto family story on KPFA and Full Circle in the coming weeks and week in the coming week and weeks flashpoints hard knock radio up front our shows i'm sure we'll be digging into this new case and this new fight for justice and to continue on this conversation after the press conference i sat down with the mayor and vice mayor of antioch we had actually planned this interview before the news dropped about the angelo quinto case The interview was to be about people of color leading the city and for the first time, a majority of African-Americans on the city council. Monica Wilson, the vice mayor now, was the first African-American woman to be on the Antioch City Council when she was first elected in 2012. And our new mayor, Lamar Thorpe, is the second African-American to ever be mayor of Antioch. So let's check out some excerpts from that interview. Well, let's talk about some of the projects that you're all working on and see how that's going. I know you've done the bridge housing and that sounds like it's coming back or continuing. Some people call the homeless hotels, but it's actually a temporary home for homeless people to help them get them back into um, permanent housing. So how's that going, uh, Lamar? I'll start with you this time. And what's in the future for that? Well, we'll be discussing that on Tuesday. Uh, It's a... um... You know, bridge housing is a, I'll say principle, not a, not a program. It's not a, it's not a project. It's a principle that a city would embrace that ensures that we have a place for those who are unhoused, who need, uh, who want to be in the track towards permanent housing, where you can't just get off the street and go into permanent housing with the county's assistance. You can't have been living 20, 30 years on the streets and just go into permanent housing. There's a process that goes along with that. Rich housing is a critical component to that. And it's one of the many strategies to get people out of uh, homelessness. You know, I wouldn't call it like temporary shelter. That's a different thing. I wouldn't. It, this is it's a bridge towards housing mm-hmm. and it's to stabilize people so that when we start talking about, you know, everybody always says, well, there's a there's all these resources that are available. Just give them a list of resources so that they can go help themselves. Well, it's not that easy to mm-hmm. just pick yourself up and go get resources yeah. when you're trying to sleep at night. So the the concept here is to, the principle here is to stabilize people's lives, get them the resources that they need, the wraparound services, and get them towards permanent housing. And that's how you end homelessness. Um, Well, let's talk something uh, about something that's important to you, Monica, because you work hard. Um, We just left uh, the Sex Trafficking Awareness Month, but it's something that you're constantly working on. Um, what are you looking forward to in the, this, you know, you're in for what, two years now? Yeah. <laughs> so um, what are you looking Two years for? goes by real fast. <laughs> so um, you looking into this as one of your projects, what, what do you got um, in the future for us? I mean, it's a continuing project that's always been very passionate to me, you know, in the beginning, you know, really doing the awareness piece of making sure the public was aware that it's happening and also, you know, educating people that it's happening here. 
Um, so, you know, you're right. January was Human Trafficking Awareness Month. This month is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. So really, you know, making, you know, over the overarching theme for me is really, you know, making people aware of sexual violence. And, and that's a form of trauma. Um, you know, he, as I said, human trafficking happens in plain sight. It's a crime that does not discriminate. So it can happen to anybody. It can happen to your neighbor. It can happen to uh, your friend. It can happen to a sister or brother. But it, it, it happens to our most vulnerable. I was just on a call with someone from the DA's office. You know, there's uptick in, you know, not only human trafficking, but domestic violence in East County. And how, how do we make the public aware and how do we help, how do we combat, combat that? And so, as I said, this month is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. And you know, we're doing a whole program called Real Talk uh, this coming Monday for Antioch teens, uh, for them to come and, A, be educated on teen dating violence because, I believe it's one in five youth are um, experience some type type of uh, dating violence in, while while in high school or wise as a teenager, you know, and that's really kind of the start of if somebody is experiencing uh, an abusive relationship and not telling anybody, that person's usually on the road down to being trafficked. To battle this is really bringing awareness to uh, to our youth about what is a healthy relationship, what to do. We're even offers, offering bystander training because a lot of youth have reached out like, I see, you know, I know a friend, but I don't know how to intervene. How do, you know, how do we educate them on bystander training and how they can step in or who they can they can go talk to 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 intervene and, and help somebody out. All right. Well, how can um, youth get involved in that? Is there a way they could log in or? Um, yes, there's a, um, and it's, I, I believe it's almost at capacity, but um, I have it on my Facebook page. I believe also it's on the Antioch Unified School District's Facebook, uh, Facebook and social media pages, along with the city's uh, Facebook and social media pages on how they can sign up. Um, and it's going to be a really great event. And also uh, things coming up in the future, uh, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So we're looking forward to doing a lot of education and awareness on that. And I'll probably, you know, outside of those months, I'll constantly be All right. talking about it. <laughs> well, can you throw out your um, your official Facebook as a city councilwoman so people can know it? Yeah, my uh, official Facebook page is uh, Vice Mayor Monica. Vice Mayor Monica. All right. <laughs> Well, we are getting a low on time, and I know that um, there's a lot going on. We have the bridging the gap, um, not to be confused with the bridge housing, but the bridging the gap conversation on police reform. And just today, the news has dropped about Angelo Quinto, um, the young man who was recently killed by the ANAC police Christmas Eve. And the new the family is pretty much just breaking their silence today. I guess I would like to get your response on that. I know there's not a lot of information available to you um, at this time because the news has just broke. What have you know about the Angelo Quinto case today? What have you been aware of? Let's start with you, Mayor. Well, you know, there's an active investigation from the DA's office, and so I'm not going to comment on an active investigation from the DA's office. All right. Yeah. Okay. And I suppose that's the same for you. All right. Well, I could just say that for myself, I'm not involved in that, that I was um, with the family today. And uh, with the, at the press conference this morning, and they're convinced that the young man um, died at their home. And the video shows that they're doing CPR in the house as they're trying to uh, take the young man out. There's not a lot you can say, as you said, but um, I would just add that um, the Quinto family, one of their hopes um, out of this, of course, like all families that this happens to, that this never happens to another family again, one of the things that they were proposing was a crisis response team um, separate from police. And I know that you guys have probably followed a lot of the cities that are actually working with these special teams that are not in uh, not in the police department, but they're separate from the police. They consist of like mental health people and um, people that specialize in 
uh, mental health issues. Would you guys ever consider something like that? I think so, I was just talking about that. <laughs> that's what Monica was talking about. I will say this. Um, I spoke to the mom and I offered my condolences. And I was just sorry that this, that this happened to their family and that they have to experience this. But there is an active investigation. Outside of that, uh, I think we recognize, that's why Monica's on the transition team, particularly around mental health. And so uh, these are some of the models that they're looking at uh, right now. Uh, so um, hopefully we can bring that forward as well. But Monica can talk a little more about. She did kind of talk about that earlier. That's yeah, what she was. Yeah, yeah. That was if you go back to what I campaigned on. That was a major uh, issue. One of my platforms is trying to push that, uh, push that forward. Um, and we're seeing more and more across the nation. I'm not just saying Antioch specific. We're seeing more and more across the uh, across the nation of people who are in. Who are, I don't even want to say just mental health, but people who are experiencing an episode or a traumatic episode and they're reaching out like, I need, I need some help. And really, you know, having the right response team to come to that. People that, that specialize in mental health that know how to deescalate that. Um, and I've done a ton of research, you know, looking at cities like Eugene, Oregon. I know San Francisco. I've been looking at what they've done. Other cities across the United States I've been looking to do. I even got a call the other day from somebody, I believe, uh, not Chicago, another city in the Midwest that reached out to me that said, hey, I heard you're making phone calls. What research have you done? Uh, we're looking at something very similar. This is something that's going forward. In fact, I believe the state just passed um, – uh, uh, I don't. I can't remember if it's a Senate bill or an Assembly bill addressing the same issue. Is this something you guys think you might be able to get into in these next two years? That while you're in office, I'm I'm pushing. I'm very much pushing for that. You know, it's uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, push that push that issue and and propose it, and hopefully I have the support to make that pass and hopefully bring that to fruition because it has to go through its process. Once it passes, then we got to go through the process of of getting a team on. So. All right. I think um, you'll find a lot of support. I feel like there's a lot of support here for that. Mr. Mayor, you have to say something? You know, on the issue of mental health and even the homeless, even the unhoused resident issue, you know, we keep asking our police officers to do more and more. And we keep, and effectively, we keep asking them to be social workers. We want them to get trained on mental health stuff. We want them to get trained on how to, how to interact with, with people who are experiencing homelessness. We want them to be in our schools to be effectively social workers for kids. And we have to stop asking our police officers to solve all the problems. Number one, because it's not efficient. But number two, because as if this doesn't have a mental health impact on police officers as well and all that they see. And so uh, I hope that we can get to a point uh, and that we can even serve as a model for other cities in, in Contra Costa County that we have to stop asking our police officers to do everything under the sun. The reason, the reason we have a community engagement team here in the city of Antioch that specifically uh, has a strong focus on uh, unhoused residents was because the council asked for this. They, they asked for this. We wanted to send police officers to the schools. We, we want our police officers to be trained on mental health. We, as policymakers, as the public, keep demanding more and more from our police officers. And then... We don't even provide them with the resources that they need to do this, <laughs> to do these types of jobs. And so we have to alleviate uh, those who asked to be police officers, who signed up to be police officers 
from those burdens and get them focused on the things that they actually signed up to do, which is to keep the peace, to fight crime, uh, to keep our neighborhood safe. All right. Well, I'm glad you guys are looking into it. And I feel like there'll be a lot of support in town personally. And I'm looking forward to um, backing you both on that um, as much as I can and working towards those ends. The bridging the gap. Let's just real quick go over the bridging the gap because you're wrapped. I think it wrapped up this uh, today. It wrapped up today. How are you feeling about the bridging the gap? Personally, when the one that I joined in, I shared my comments online. You might have read them. You might not. I didn't feel like it gave ample opportunity for the one that I was involved in, which was the first one. Um, I forgot the title of it, but um, as a victim of police violence and a survivor, I felt like um, the information that the people running the the process didn't provide a lot of information on why we need police reform in Antioch. There was no mention of um, past cases of officers that are in jail right now um, doing time for crimes they committed as police officers. There's no mention of the past two, now three, asphyxiation deaths of people in town. There was no mention of the numerous lawsuits and payouts um, by the city. And it really left the people in the groups I was with, especially the back the blue people that came in to be a part of it, to back the blue, um, uninformed about why we needed reform in Antioch. It only offered generalities um, from other places. So how are you feeling about bridging the gap? I didn't get to participate today or the middle, um, the second one, so I missed out on that. But let's start with the mayor. How's it feeling for you, bridging the gap? I know this also was an alternative um, system put in place because you as a council person in the past, in 2020, were trying to do the ad hoc committee, which is going to take a deep dive and an exploration into you know stuff what we needed. And this bridging the gap was an alternative put forward by Mayor Sean Wright and the council at the time. How you Correct. Uh, you know, I inherited this process. And and if this is what the council wanted to do and the public wanted to do, then I was going to see it out. Uh, there's been nonsense about whoever you talk to, they'll have a different opinion. Oh, it, look, uh, Mayor Thorpe set it up in a way so that the outcomes are the what he wants. To, well, there really are no outcomes. It's a conversation. <laughs> yeah, they're going to have recommendations. Great. But I'm I'm the mayor and I'm going to do police reform. <laughs> irrespective of what comes out of these conversations, I'm pushing my police reform agenda. I've been working with council members to develop that agenda. Had a great conversation with the chief recently about uh, police reform and some of the things he'd like to see. And I look forward to meeting with our union president in the coming days to kind of talk through what they think of police reform. But these conversations were never, uh, in my opinion, intended to have an outcome. I mean, there's going to be some recommendations. I think they're going to be pretty clear. Oh, people want body cameras. People want. I get it, but they were they weren't intended to have a specific outcome. They also were never intended to be that specific about Antioch, because what happened was is that I think after post George Floyd, there was just an understanding globally that okay, there are going to be police reforms that happen. I think we're at a place in America where you're silly if you're a city or an agency that doesn't have body cameras. That's just, I think, a norm that is just going to exist. But don't expect the federal government to solve your problem. We as local, we have to act locally and think globally. Globally, the issue is transparency. Well, that means at the local level, we have to then enact body cameras. So I think it wasn't necessarily a question about, well, should Antioch have body cameras? That answer has been, that question has been answered. 
that was a national conversation we had. We all had it post George Floyd. So there are some normal, some things that just that 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 became apparent post George Floyd that were going to happen. And I think that was part of the conversation um, that I think that was at the the core of what the council wanted to have, because if you remember in those conversations, there was just this very um, this belief that oh well okay that happened over there, but what does that have to do with Antioch? So then let's talk about it globally. What I wanted to have a conversation was exactly the things you're talking about. Well, if we're going to have police reform, let's think globally and let's think globally and act locally, but also look at our policies to see what does need to change, even beyond the common sense things that we now see. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt. I know we're just getting low on time, but you have some big plans coming up in March. March is a police reform month for the city of Antioch. You know, there's going to be some some conversations again. What, what can we look forward to in March? Look forward to a lot. I think given where we're at now and some of the pent-up frustration i think from the public i think you're going to see some announcements sooner rather than in march that we'll deal with in march uh, but i think that there's some announcements coming uh, soon and monica how are you feeling about um all that's happening with police reform and stuff right now what are you looking forward to i'm looking forward to you know having the discussion around policy and you know what mayor thorpe has said is this conversation is happening globally and it's interesting, you know, I too, have, as, I've, as I've kind of had conversations with people that participated in this, in these uh, community conversations, no matter what side people were on, they felt like their side wasn't covered. <laughs> Everybody feels like their issue was not addressed. But at the same time, we wanted to have, come together and have that conversation, irregardless of the people that were saying, oh, it's, that's Minneapolis. And we're Antioch. Okay, yeah, but it's still happening on a global level. We need to have that conversation. Think of if we all had had this global conversation years ago, maybe the incident with George Floyd, maybe, I, mean, I don't know, but maybe it may not have happened. But I think, you know, for me as a council person, it's good that we're having the conversation and it's a conversation we definitely need to have. And we, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be hiding our heads in the sand about it. We shouldn't go, we shouldn't fall back on, well, there was no, you know, I didn't have a problem and, you know, we never had this problem. And so therefore, you know, we shouldn't talk about it while you have a you know, group over here saying, I've been watching this problem all the time and nobody's acknowledging, acknowledging that this is happening. We have to have a conversation about it. We just can't keep constantly, you know, uplifting this one side and then just saying, okay, well, poo-poo on, poo-poo to you, to this other side. So- I know I said a lot and hopefully it made a lot of sense, but it's a conversation that we definitely need to have. And we can't keep, you know, turning the other way. We can't keep looking the other way like, oh, well, that's that incident. Well, this is, well, so-and-so is a good guy. And, you know, I've, I've heard that a million times, like somebody does something that's just way out of line. And then you hear a person come back. Well, that's just so-and-so. But at the point, we have to have these conversations. I would say that um, I thank you for trying to take these bold steps. Um, I would encourage you to be bold and to think um, big and to go for it, you know, while you have this time. And I'm looking forward to um, the work that you're doing. And I hope that you have success. And I hope that you do go bold and go big. And uh, I appreciate that you're actually taking a good look at what needs to be done. Because you guys know me, I've been speaking on it um, since my case in 2009. And there was people before me. So I will say this, and here's where I think it's relevant to your conversation about Black History Month. Uh, I'm just sorry to say this, but if we were white politicians saying these things, we wouldn't be attacked the way we are. I mean, that was called a nigger the other day. These things are fueled by 
just this 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 portrait some folks try to paint of African Americans just because we stand up for social justice, mm -hmm. that we must be cop haters, that we must be socialist, that we must be all these different things that they think are negative. When that's what I keep hearing. They, the two cop haters. Uh, I don't hate cops. I don't. I don't hate it's, cops. It's, <laughs> and it, and it's 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 sickening, and uh, so. But it's still, you know, you know, as we as we celebrate yet another Black History Month, I, I just, you know, these are things for the history books too. Number one, why did it have to take Black people to show up at City Hall to say, okay, we need to do these reforms and force force them to do these reforms? Uh, why did it, why is it that when Black people lead these these conversations, uh, we have to be lynched in these internet circles, these blogs, simply because? Because we have ideas and positions, and and so it's it's fascinating to me to watch these things. But it's also, you know, I celebrate the fact that I'm the mayor. I'm the second black mayor. Monica is still the first black woman elected to the city council. But it's still, it, it, we have to remind ourselves there's still plenty, plenty of work to do, absolutely plenty of work to do. Uh, and so, um, as we uh, as we kind of celebrate this milestone in Black history as the first three or majority African-American council, it doesn't come with a moment of kumbaya. This is, a, this is a fight. This is an absolute fight. And it's a fight against institutions who refuse to change. It's a fight against complacency. It's a fight against the status quo. It's a fight for folks who say, no, 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 we're still the old town of, of back in the day. I don't want to be the old town of back in the day when black people were chased out of here. No, I don't want to be that town. I don't want to go back to that. I don't ever want to be that. We're the town that welcomes everybody. We're the, excuse me, not, we're not even a town. We're the city that welcomes everybody. Everybody has a place in Antioch, irrespective of how you got here as a homeowner, a renter. I don't care. Everybody has a place in this community. All right. Well, great words to end on. I thank you, uh, Mr. Mayor Lamar Thorpe and uh, Vice Mayor Monica Wilson. Thank you. And I thank you for um, giving me the time to speak with us tonight on Full Circle. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, you are listening to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM, KPFA, and kpfa.org. That was Antioch Mayor Lamar Thorpe and Vice Mayor Monica Wilson. Together with Tamisha Walker, they comprise, for the first time, a majority African-American city council in Antioch. And remember, that was just about 20 minutes of a 35-minute conversation Check out the full interview on our website, kpfaapprentice.org. Just after the show, I unfortunately had to cut for time tonight, but we also spoke more about the unhoused community in Antioch as well as teen dating violence. So a big thank you to the mayor and vice mayor for taking the time to speak with me. And also a quick fun drive reminder this type of reporting and storytelling is not possible without KPFA. If you support on-the-ground reporting and information like you're hearing tonight, please consider heading over to kpfa.org and clicking on that Donate tab. We are listener-sponsored and survive on those donations. Anyone who donates any amount tonight and leaves an email can get, it his can get our historic Black History Knowledge is Power Archives of Maya Angelou and Langston Hughes from KPFA. That's waiting for you right now and much more at kpfa.org. 
I want to thank everybody that has donated tonight. I've actually struggled a bit today to get this information together um, for tonight, and I appreciate the support. The Prince Conference, the mayor and the vice mayor all happened yesterday and last night, so it's been a quick turnaround, as they say in the business. I also provided sound to the KPFA Evening News yesterday. So let me know you appreciate all that work it takes to put these shows together and go visit us on kpfa.org and make a donation at this time. And I'll just say thanks in advance. And let's get on to our last piece tonight because graduate Sharon Peterson is back with another Black History tribute. Let's check it out. So we've all seen, or at least are aware of, the film Hidden Figures. And of course, we are also all too fully aware that hidden figures can be found or wait to be found in every form of human endeavor. And that women, women of color, people of color, and people who identify as LGBTQIA+, are among the most likely people whose achievements become hidden. Here at KPFA, and specifically right now on Full Circle, we aim to unhide. Tonight's spotlight is on the Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray, activist and Renaissance woman, We also feature a black woman composer whose music is played by a black woman instrumentalist. Pauli Murray's story is accompanied by the sonata in E minor, Andante Allegro, composed by Florence Price and played by Maria Corley. A link to the piece will be posted to kpfaapprentice.org after the show. Now, on to the story of the Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray. Born Anna Pauline Murray in Baltimore, Maryland, on November 20, 1910, Murray lost her mother when she was four years old. In 1923, her father was murdered by a white security guard while he was confined in a state mental institution. Now orphaned at the age of 14, Murray moved to Durham, North Carolina, where she lived with her grandparents and her aunt. Despite these early tragedies, Murray graduated from high school with distinction in 1926 and entered Hunter College in New York City, where she graduated with a degree in English literature in 1933. After graduating from Hunter during the Great Depression, Murray taught for the New York City Remedial Reading Project and also worked for the Works Progress Administration, WPA, and the Workers' Defense League. Murray tried to get into graduate school at the University of North Carolina, but was declined due to her color. Murray's case attracted national attention for a bit and resulted in a long friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt. Somewhere in this period, Murray chose to go by the non-gender specific first name of Pauli, P-A-U-L-I. Today's definitions of gender identity and our current pronouns did not exist in Murray's lifetime. Murray had no way to assert or even verbally define her own identity, even to herself, beyond making a simple name change. In 1940, Murray was arrested for refusing to move to the back of a bus in Richmond, Virginia. The experience sparked a deep commitment to civil rights. Murray decided to study law at Howard University, where she was the only woman in her class and the number one student. Murray did not exactly hide her nose in her books. She also organized protests to desegregate public facilities. 
Murray, along with George Hauser, Bayard Rustin, and James Farmer, founded the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE. In 1944, Murray's law class discussed how to eliminate Jim Crow. The Supreme Court, in its 1896 decision on Plessy v. Ferguson, enshrined Jim Crow as doctrine, known as separate but equal. Following Plessy, efforts to chip away at segregation yielded nothing but slow, incremental progress. In addition, that focus on separate but equal led, unintentionally, to a perception that all black businesses and institutions were automatically less than. One student, guess who, asked, why don't we just challenge the separate part? After being laughed at, and after being told that such an idea was reckless because the Supreme Court would simply affirm Plessy versus Ferguson and back to square one, Murray offered a wager to her professor, Spotswood Robinson. $10 says that within 25 years, Plessy will be overturned. Murray then turned her radical notion into a law school paper, her last paper before graduation from Howard. Well, the overturning did not take 25 years. It was more like one decade. As to how that happened, well, some years after the bet was made, Professor Robinson worked with Thurgood Marshall, then a counsel of the NAACP, who went on to become a Supreme Court justice and colleagues to end Jim Crow. The professor remembered Polly Murray's reckless paper and presented it to this team. This was the team that successfully argued Brown versus Board of Education before the Supreme Court in 1954. Dr. Polly Murray was almost 50 years old before she learned of the role her own radical writing played in her winning that $10 bet. After being rejected by Harvard University due to gender, which sparked a new commitment, this time to feminism, Dr. Murray went on to complete her postgraduate work here in our neighborhood at the UC Berkeley School of Law. In 1950, Dr. Murray published State's Laws on Race and Color, a large volume of state and local laws and ordinances that mandated segregation, plus civil rights legislation and federal court decisions. Thurgood Marshall called State's Laws the Bible for civil rights lawyers. After touring Ghana to explore her roots and teach law, Dr. Murray went on to earn her Doctorate of Juridical Science at Yale University, the first African-American to receive that degree. President Kennedy appointed Murray to the Committee on Civil and Political Rights as a part of his Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. Here she worked with A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to try to bring black women more to the fore in grassroots organizing. Murray went on to play vital roles in many organizations for equal rights. For example, in 1966, Murray was a co-founder of the National Organization of Women, NOW. In her legal work, Murray argued that the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, should apply equally to racially-based and gender-based discrimination. The clause has since been invoked successfully in sex discrimination cases. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg employed Murray's legal strategy in her own brief, Reed versus Reed, to argue that women should not be excluded from administering personal estates due to their gender. Following the death of her longtime partner, Irene Barlow, Murray turned to religious studies. In 1977, the Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray was ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church, the first African-American female Episcopal priest. She ministered to the sick in a Washington, D.C. parish before retiring in 1982. 
Throughout her adult life, in her spare time, the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray wrote magazine articles, two autobiographies and poems, and two books on discrimination and the law. Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination in Title VII, Murray coined the term Jane Crow, and Roots of the Racial Crisis, Prologue to Policy. The Reverend Dr. Polly Murray passed away on July 1, 1985. Despite all of her personal achievements, Despite Murray's influence on so many of the great influencers in the fight against discrimination, despite the many lasting positive changes she'd had a hand in bringing about, Polly Murray is not quite a household name, even now. Hopefully we've helped to rectify that tonight. We only had a few minutes to do her justice, so links to more material will be posted on kpfaapprentice.org about an hour after the show. My special thanks go to our Full Circle production consultant, Joy Moore. More joy for turning me on to the story of the Reverend Dr. Pauli Murray. KPFA's mission and passion is to call forth what is largely hidden, to shine a light upon both the good and transcendent, such as Pauli Murray and the music of Florence Price as played by Maria Corley, and to shine a light upon the bad and malignant such as certain policies and actions of government and corporations. You won't find this kind of information or our kind of entertainment on mainstream radio. We do this without corporate money, which means we can only do this with the support of listeners like you. Please support us by donating what you can comfortably donate to kpfa.org. Thanks again, Sharon Peterson. It's been wonderful to have you back and Ron Thompson and Radio Shack coming back next week. I really appreciate the apprenticeship family. And, you know, I have relied on you not only for radio support, but for my life support. Yes, many long time full circle, full circle, (laughs) many long time full circle listeners will know that becoming an apprentice here is what kept me off meth after suffering from addiction. I will be forever grateful for that. And another reminder, I am asking for support tonight for KPFA. This listener-sponsored radio station has been going since 1949, and we're still here. We are a vital source for important information. Please, if you can tonight, support listener-sponsored radio, KPFA. Just head on over to kpfa.org and hit that donate button tonight. We got t-shirts, hoodies, socks, beanie caps, all that at kpfa.org. And I appreciate all the people logging on tonight. If you are able to take that moment, please join all those folks at kpfa.org. I only got about a minute left and I have to get out of here. I want to thank all of you that have donated from the bottom of my heart tonight. I really appreciate it. One more time for the folks in the back, kpfa.org. Keep us on the air in these important times. Big shout out to all my friends and family out there who have made a donation tonight. Mom, Steph, I haven't checked yet, but I'm relying on you. Dad, what's it going to be? Go to kpfa.org.
O-R-G. The Apprenticeship family really appreciates the support that we get from the listeners. Remember, we are a training program that brings people off the street, gives them radio broadcasting skills, how to edit, how to mix, how to get out in the street and record stories. And then we bring that back to the station. Or in this case, now we're working at home and we're teaching online. And then we bring those stories to you. Only got a few seconds left here to give out the website. You already know what it is. KPFA.org. Thank you, everybody, for helping me out tonight. Go over there and click on that Donate tab. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember to check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show for the extended interview with the mayor and vice mayor of Antioch. Also, the link to the entire Angelo Quinto press conference. You will also find pictures, archive shows, and other information there. Shout out to all our producers tonight. Ron Thompson, yeah, Sharon Peterson, ooh, and, of course, myself, Frank Sterling. And one more final shout-out to the Full Circle crew. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And, again, myself, Rewell Franklin. I am the technical director for this show, Full Circle. And I have also been your host tonight. And I want to also send a special heavenly shout-out to Jenny Jones, my first wife who we lost this week. She helped connect me to KPFA, and I'm sure I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. So thank you very much. And thank you for listening, everyone. Remember to please protect your health and your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA. Up next, Londa Bajita. Good night.